Jonah chapter 1, and this afternoon we want to look at right confessions but wrong lifestyle. Right confessions but wrong lifestyle. We're looking at verses 9 through 17, Uh, finish up chapter 1. Now, some of you young people probably don't remember this particular commercial on TV many years ago. The Coca-Cola bottling company came up with a very popular advertising campaign, and the slogan was so popular, even though I don't think it's been used for quite a while. I imagine if I started saying the jingle, or many of you here that would still remember the refrain, uh, it's, it's not a good part of the, the jingle, but it goes, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. This is back in the uh, hippie days. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. And then the refrain, it said, it's the real thing, Okay. Well, that was an interesting advertising campaign. I hate to minimize the importance of the product in world affairs, but what does Coke have to do with the world learning to sing in perfect harmony? You know, just because you drink Coke, you're going to sing in perfect harmony? You're going to have peace in the world? And that's what I was all all talking about, you know, peace, brother. You know, that was uh, back in my college days, lots of hippies running around. I was a half a hippie, but uh, anyway, not really. wasn't my. I didn't fit in very well to that group. But uh, doesn't have much to do with singing in perfect harmony. But what exactly um, is the real thing? You know, what's the standard? What makes a soft drink, a, uh, a cola, not real? Now, no doubt. They were talking about the varieties of cola, you know, uh, Pepsi, that's not the real thing, or, or some other uh, RC cola, maybe that, that's not the thing. You want Coca-Cola. That's the real thing. And then they began to mess with it, and they said, uh, we're going to change the taste. And all oh, the up, uh, cry, uh, outcry was terrible. We went back to the old formula. And so they came up with classic Coke, you know, and all along, they come up with the new Coke versus classic Coke. And now they've been advertising. And my daughter got one of these for me, I guess, for my birthday. Orange vanilla Coke. I wasn't really, I didn't, I didn't really care for it. I don't think I'm going to go out and just spend money on that, if, you know. But uh, that's the latest, orange vanilla Coke. And the commercial is you got this ice cream truck going along, and then you got this, this truck with oranges going along, and then you got this Coca-Cola truck going along, and they all kind of converge and uh, come up with orange vanilla Coke. Well, what's the point? The point of all this is we're living in a culture that craves things that are real. 
Probably most of us have owned at least one pair of Levi jeans over the years. I don't know about you, but uh, uh, many of you might have several pair of Levi jeans hanging in your closet. Actually, to my dismay, or to the dismay of my children, I'm a Wrangler man. But uh, usually the uh, Levi jeans would have a tag on there, original or authentic or something. They're not fakes. And there have been companies or people that have tried to copy it, come up with cheap imitations, but it's not the genuine article. And today we've even coined a phrase to describe this characteristic we're talking about that flows out of our love for Mexican food, right? We don't just talk about the real thing or the genuine article, we talk about the real enchilada. Now that was the real enchilada. Well... Our culture craves things and people that are real. And I don't know if you know it or not, but the Bible is very concerned about that. The idea of being genuine, real. Now, God often teaches us by way of opposites, and the opposite of what I'm describing to you right now is hypocrisy giving the impression that you're something on the inside and you're really not that. But you give the impression on the outside that you are something on the inside. Living one way in front of one group of people, and then when you're around another group of people, you might act or live a completely different way. Now, hypocrisy is a word that the Bible writers took from the world of the Greek theater. An actor was called an hypocritos. Hypocritos. And if you could not identify, if he could not identify himself with his role, he was actually hiding behind a mask or disguise, but there was no genuineness about him. He wasn't fooling anybody. So hypocrisy, we're talking about not the real thing, not the genuine article. And so the question is, for every person who's a member of our church, or every person who attends regularly, for every person, period, are you the real thing? Are you the genuine article? Now, someone might respond to those questions, well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, that's good. I'm glad you do. But that, and that's a good confession, but is that saying what makes a person real thing? Just because a person believes in Jesus Christ and that he's actually the Son of God, does that make you the real thing? Well, you say, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and was resurrected from the de- dead. I'm glad that uh, is of your belief as well. That's part of your confession. But is it what makes a person a real thing? And so today we're looking at a man who has the right confession. He could mouth the right words. He could give the right answers. He could talk a pretty good game. But in the final analysis, his confession proved to be deficient. And with those thoughts in mind, I want you again to be there. I hope you found your place there in Jonah. And we're continuing here in the book of Jonah, a study of this man's life. Now, we've left Jonah 
earlier in quite a pickle. So they say, he was a prophet of Israel. God told him, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Well, Jonah didn't like the idea uh, because Nineveh was in Assyria and the Assyrians were the enemies of Israel. Jonah didn't want the Assyrians to hear God's message because he knew these unbelievers just might repent and God would show mercy on them. And Jonah didn't want that to happen. Jonah knew the character of God enough to know that even if wicked Assyrians repented, God would forgive them and would stay his hand of judgment, and God might even choose to bless them. That's terrible in his mind. And since Israel was not pleasing God at that point in their history, God might even turn around and use the Assyrians as an instrument of judgment on Israel. So Jonah didn't like God's plan at all, and he started to run. The Bible says he went down to Joppa, found a ship headed for Tarshish, and paid the fare. That plan worked great until verse 4 tells us that God sent a great wind into the sea, and he, we learned that when a person tries to run from God, God will run after them, and if even if judgment is required to help one of his children to change, to turn around, God is the kind of loving Heavenly Father who will do whatever is necessary to help that person repent and to do right. Now, of course, it's always best to obey in the first place. But for those who'd rather run, the message of the Bible is God chastens those he loves. And a complicating factor is that often that chastening affects not only you, but the people that are in your boat with you. And that makes it even more important to obey God and avoid his loving hand of chastisement. So now, the jig is up, so to speak. Verse 9. The unbelieving seamen have cast lots to find out whose fault the storm was, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him a rapid, some rapid-fire questions there uh, in verse 8. What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Tell us, tell us now, on whose account... Has this calamity struck us? And that brings us to Jonah's answer and his confession there in verse 9. He said unto them, I am in Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. And so I want us to look here this afternoon at three principles from a man who had the right confession, but the wrong lifestyle. I mean, that's a pretty good answer. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who hath made the sea and the land dry land. He says, I fear God. He's the God of heaven. He's, he's, a, he's the real God. He's not some God you bow down to. Uh, he's the creator. He made the sea. He made the dry land. That's a good confession. But where is Jonah? He's living the wrong lifestyle. So number one, there's a difference between appearing orthodox and being genuine. There's a difference between appearing orthodox and being genuine. Now, let's define a couple of words here 
so we understand what we're talking about. Orthodox means having the right doctrine or having the right set of beliefs about God. That's what orthodox means. And we're using the phrase appearing orthodox because I don't think in the final analysis that Jonah was orthodox. His confession in verse 9 was a good confession. But if he truly believed what he was saying, he wouldn't be acting the way he's acting. So the point stands. There's a difference between appearing orthodox and being genuine. Now, another way to state this, excuse me for not advancing here. Another way to say this, there's a difference between saying the right thing and doing the right thing. Or saying the right thing and being the right thing. You see, here's a man who had the right confession, but the wrong lifestyle. And let me repeat the question I asked you before. Are you the real thing? Are you the genuine article? And what's more important to God? That we have right doctrine or we have a right lifestyle? Well, do you know the answer to that question? The answer to that question is, that's not a very good question. <laughs> okay. The truth is both are important to God, and each is necessary to truly have the other. They feed off one another, and the absence of one is a deficiency in the other. What we need is to prevent Jonah-like behavior and sailor-like behavior. And you see this in churches all across our country, churches both uh, around, around the world, both extremes, very evident today, Jonah-like behavior and sailor-like behavior. We'll talk about that here uh, in more detail. Let's look at sailor-like behavior first. Sailor-like living. This is what I mean. What are these sailors trying to do? The answer is they're trying to live properly without the proper doctrine. They're trying to handle the trial that was raging around them by resorting to their idolatry and their paganism. They're handling the problems of life without proper doctrine. And many churches, many Christians are doing the same thing. Many believers have disregarded biblical truth and they've deserted biblical truth in exchange for the latest psychological fad of the day. I could illustrate that for as long as we wanted to sit around here and talk about it. For instance, Dr. So-and-so discusses children who don't do well in school, and he says some of these children are just born that way. You can't expect these children to study. Uh, you can't expect them to pay attention. You can't expect them to care. You'll just frustrate yourself, and you'll just frustrate them if you try to change them. You say, well, what do you think about that? Well, the answer is that's false doctrine. That's false teaching. That's false thinking. That failing is, uh, that is failing to think parentally biblical, parenting biblically. That is failing to think about life theologically. That is living like these sailors were living. Now, I'm not saying that every child is going to do well as everyone else in, in school. 
But I am saying whatever part of that child's inner and outer man is unlike Jesus Christ, God would call that sin. God would want that young person to repent. God would want that parent to carefully teach their children, lovingly discipline them. Now, that doesn't mean a child's going to automatically get straight A's, but it does mean the child will recognize his or her responsibility to change and grow to be more like Jesus Christ, using the skills, the gifts, the abilities that a sovereign God has given to them. Now, listening to such a philosophy, one has to ask, where is the God of heaven and earth in that discussion? Where, where is the sufficient scripture? Where is the hope of change? Where is the power of the blood of Christ? And that's especially disgusting about all of, uh, what is this disgusting about all this is that Dr. So-and-so will start the discussion with some kind of a statement like this. Well, I'm no theologian. Well, do you know what word is going to come next in that sentence? But. I'm no theologian, but. And then they'll have a proposed answer to the problem of daily living, which is very humanistic. Now, I'm going to say something that not everyone would agree with. Every problem of life is a theological problem. In other words, you cannot divorce the problems of living from sound theology. Let the Bible be the Bible. Let it be sufficient guide to living what God says that it is. We don't need more. We need more Bible. We don't need something else. We need more Bible. Let's return to a careful connection of problems to the, to, of life to sound theology. Let's not live like these pitiful sailors lived. Let's avoid sailor-like living. That brings us to Jonah-like living. It's supposed to be the other side, right? Let's avoid, though, Jonah-like living. What was Jonah-like living? It was paying lip service to right doctrine, doctrine, but not letting it affect him. You know, often doctrine is taught in a dry, dusty fashion that's absolutely nothing to do with the problems of life that believers face today. Other doctrine is received without careful consideration or of how this truth ought to practically affect one's life. So it is good that a man would say, you know, I believe that God is omnipresent. Do you believe that? That's d good doctrine right there. I believe that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He's here now. Isn't that good? Sure, but what's better? A person, for a person to say, I believe that God is everywhere present, then I'm going to be faithful to my husband or my wife every day. Even when no one else is around, I believe the depth of my heart that an omnipresent uh, God of heaven and earth knows. You know, it's good for a young person to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Isn't that good? Sure it is. But what's better? For that young person to say, because Jesus Christ is my Lord, I will not compromise my testimony to him. 
regardless of the price I might have to pay, because I don't want to just say, Jesus is my Lord. I generally want to act like Jesus Christ is my Lord. So you could summarize this with a simple statement. God wants people who believe right, and he wants people who act right. Or turn it around and say it negatively, God does not want you to depreciate the importance of right doctrine, nor does he want you to depreciate the importance of right living. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, the key question then becomes, well, how can I tell? How can I tell if I'm the real thing? And our text here will answer this question very clearly. Notice the second principle. Your genuineness will be demonstrated by an outstanding lifestyle. Your genuineness will be demonstrated by an outstanding lifestyle. Now, what do we mean by outstanding? Does that mean you're going to be famous? Uh, Does it mean you're going to be popular? Does it mean you're going to be the most intelligent person around? No. It's outstanding in the sense that your life is markedly different than those who don't know the Lord. You see, there's a clear interplay in these verses of what's supposed, that the supposed believer was doing and what the obvious unbeliever was doing. And the sad thing is, Jonah's life was no better than those who had never met the Lord. In fact, it's even worse. It's because in several key places, the pagans, the unbelievers, the non-Christians were behaving more nobly than the prophet. They were behaving better than the believer, the Christian. So let's look first of all at the lessons from pagans. The first lesson we see here is the pagans were fearing, but the prophet was indifferent These sailors didn't know who this God was, but they surely knew he wasn't someone to mess with. We see that back in verse 5. The mariners were afraid. And every man unto his God. When they found out that Jonah actually knew Jehovah, the God who made the heaven and the earth, their reaction in verse 10 is utterly, utter amazement. Look at verse 10. And these men were exceedingly afraid. Now, back in verse 5, they were just afraid. But now in verse 10, they were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why hast thou done this? For the man knew that he had fled the presence of the Lord because he had told them. What? How could you do this? You know Jehovah and you're trying to run from his presence? Someone said it this way, they were astonished that anyone who claimed to know the creator God would have the audacity to defy him. And the contrast is not just a matter of fearing the Lord, it's also a matter of searching for truth. Notice secondly, the pagans were searching, but the prophet is asleep. 
Now you see these sailors, they're scurrying all around through this passage. What should we do? What should we do? Why is this happening? What's going on here? How can we get this right? Contrast that to Jonah, the prophet of Israel. He had been entrusted with God's law. He had been entrusted with God's word. He had been entrusted with God's promises. You don't see him searching. Not one time do you see him pray in chapter 1. Not one time does he ask a question. Pagans were searching. Prophet is asleep. And then the thirdly, thirdly, the pagans were kind, but the prophet was mean. One of the most surprising parts of this story is that men who uh, that the men didn't throw Jonah overboard as soon as they heard that it, he was uh, that it would still the storm. Remember, the storm was getting worse. Look at verse 11. And then, then said they unto him, What shall we do with thee, that the sea may calm unto us? For the sea was wrought and was tempestuous. But even then, they don't throw him overboard. And I would have. Jonah, you know it's been nice knowing you, but throwing you overboard is going to stop the storm. Give me your leg. I'll help you. And I understand that there are many reasons why they might not have done that, but of all of them, of all of them are more noble than the way the prophet was behaving. You see, the point is, Jonah's confession in verse 9 is lame. He wasn't the real thing. He wasn't the genuine article. And you could prove that by the fact that his life was not measurably better than those who didn't have the privilege of knowing his God. <clears throat> Someone has said, do you get the irony of this picture? The heathen men show compassion toward Jonah. He's the believer and he closes his heart toward the massive metropolis of Nineveh. And although his people had experienced the grace of God for generations, he closes his heart to other people. But in dramatic contrast, these coarse, rough sailors do everything they can to spare his life. Even after he had caused the loss of all of their cargo, and now may even cost them their lives. Isn't this disgraceful? Don't you often find more kindness and consideration among unbelievers than among Christians? Believers will bite and devour one another. What a shame. What a disgrace. How can you tell if you're the real thing? The answer is, is there a measurable difference between the way you live and the way those around you who don't know the Lord live? Not because you're better, but because your God is better. Now, our Lord said it this way in Matthew 5, 14. Ye are the light of the world. A city is set on the hill cannot be hid. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Those are some lessons we can learn from pagans. 
But now there's some lessons from Israel. In order to make an appropriate application to all of this, to us, we need to be sure we understand how it would have been applied to the Old Testament Israel at the time Jonah was living. What impact was God having to have or trying to have on the people of that day by allowing these things to happen to Jonah? Well, I have to kind of look back at geography here. There are three bodies of water, the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee, and I guess the Jordan River, and of course the big body of water over there is the Mediterranean. And Jonah ministered in the late 700s B.C., and God's chosen nation was actually divided at the time. There was the southern kingdom, Judah with its capital at Jerusalem. The northern kingdom was Israel with its capital at Samaria. So here's God's chosen nation divided from one another, fighting against one another. The northern kingdom where Jonah was prophesying was even established a rival center of worship and system of worship. What's wrong with this picture? Why had God given these people his law? Why had he given him them his word? Why had he given them his promises? Why had he made it possible for them to have a relationship with him like no one else on the earth? The answer is so that they could be light to the nations around them. So their lifestyle would be clearly different from anyone else on the face of the earth. And that's exactly what they are not doing. What Jonah was doing on the boat, Israel was doing as a nation. They weren't the real thing. They weren't the genuine article. Whatever they said they believed about God was just lip service. It was shallow. And the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, as the Bible tells us. And the lack of genuineness was proven by their life. Now let me ask you this. Were there any exceptions to this? Were there any people in Israel's history who honestly were the real thing and therefore their life was an example to those who didn't know God? Was there anybody like that? How about Joseph? I'd say he was the real thing, wouldn't you? God took him to what country? Egypt. He was far away from anyone who knew God. He had gotten a raw deal from his brothers. He could have been bitter. He could have decided to sin like crazy. But he didn't. Even in prison, he worked hard because he knew God. And when he had an opportunity to interpret some dreams, he didn't take the credit. He gave glory to God. And then the greatest test of all came in the house of a man by the name of Potiphar. And this man's wife propositioned Joseph day after day after day. No one would ever know. He was far away from anyone who knew God. But at the moment of incredible temptation, Joseph said what? How could I do this great evil and sin against my God? The real thing, wouldn't you say? The genuine article. Here he was a life that was clearly different. What about Daniel? Jonah was worried that Nineveh would repent and God would use Assyrians to be an instrument of judgment on disobedient Israel. What is exactly, which is exactly what happened, 
in 722 BC when Assyria dwindled and new world power was established. Do you know what? Uh, know who that was? A new world uh, power it was Babylon. And soon Babylon conquered the southern kingdom and they had already began deporting many of the key citizens and the sharp young people to Babylon. And among them, far away from their parents, far away from home, probably a teenager facing all sorts of pressure to compromise and blend in, a man by the name, a young man by the name of Daniel. Did Daniel give in? Did he get bitter about his circumstances? What did he do? He purposed in his heart that he would not eat the king's meat. He kept living for God, even when faced with death in the lion's den. He would not give in. And God used the genuineness of his faith and the purity of his life to bring great glory to the true God of heaven. Now the question is before us. Is our genuineness proven by our outstanding lifestyle? What opportunities is God giving you to show the difference, the uniqueness of a person who really knows him? What opportunities did God give you this week and did, did you take them? Now, there's one last point I'd like to mention because I think it ties it all together, and that is God stands ready to rescue those who lacked genuineness. God stands ready to rescue those who have lacked this genuineness in the past. Notice, first of all, the sailor's rescue. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now there's a lot of rescuing going on at the end of this chapter. The man, the men threw Jonah overboard and the sea immediately becomes still. Can you imagine that? As soon as Jonah hits the water, the skies are clear, the sea is calm. There's a boatload of sailors with their mouths hanging open. Oh, that was neat. But look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. The fear of the Lord, we're told in Scripture, is the beginning of wisdom. Did these men fear their God? No. They feared the one who is the creator of the sea and the land, and they offered a sacrifice unto the Lord. Sacrifice points to Jesus Christ. There is no alternative. And they made vows. What vows do these men make? They vow to the Lord that they will now serve Him. You see, through this experience, they're now turning to the living and true God. And so something good was accomplished by this storm, wasn't it? Something good was accomplished by Jonah's being on board the ship and by being cast overboard. Now that doesn't excuse Jonah's disobedience. just shows how merciful our God is. But then notice Jonah's rescue. You see, the rescue doesn't stop there. It's time for Jonah to take a smelly submarine ride. There's even forgiveness available for him. God didn't want Jonah to die. He wanted Jonah to obey. He didn't want Jonah to go to the bottom of the sea. He wanted him to preach to Nineveh. 
Now, please don't think of the fish as an instrument of judgment. Really, the opposite is true. The great fish was an instrument of salvation. That ought to give each one of us here some hope. Great hope. Jonah's life, after all, is saved by a miracle. And we're going to look at that some more in the future here. In the midst of the judgment, God remembers mercy. Jonah, more frightened than hurt, not so much punished for his sins, but he was made and prepared ready for his duty. Now he flees from the presence of the Lord, seems to fall into the avenging avenging hands of God, but yet God has more work for him to do. And so as it tells us here in verse 17, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And as the Lord calls it in Matthew 12, 40, a whale. But God's work here is not finished. But he prepares him a great fish. And that great fish was appointed to be Jonah's receiver and deliverer. Now notice God has command of all the creatures. God can make any of them serve his designs of mercy to his people, even the fishes of the sea, even the great whales. They're all together under man's government. This fish was prepared and it lay ready under the water close by the ship that it might keep Jonah from sinking to the bottom to save him alive, though he deserved to die. And we need to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord and admire his power that he could save a drowning man and in his pity he would save someone who was running from him and who had offended him. It's the Lord's mercy that Jonah was not not consumed. And the fish uh, swallows uh, Jonah not to devour him but to protect him. It's of the Lord's mercies that you and I are not consumed. Now someone might say it's against nature that this could happen. But to God, to the God of nature with whom all things are possible, I want you to notice three things that Jonah, by his miraculous preservation, was designed to be made. Very quickly here. First, he was a monument of divine mercy. For the encouragement of those who have sinned and gone away from God to return and to repent. There is mercy with God. And while a person has an opportunity to return to God and repent, they should do so. He was also designed to be a successful preacher in Nineveh. And this miracle was his deliverance. Because of this, it, the news would reach Nineveh. It would even help his success. And then thirdly, he was an illustrious type of Christ. Christ who was buried and rose again according to the scriptures, according to this scripture, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so was the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's burial was a figure of Christ 
God had prepared Jonah's grave, so he prepared Christ's grave. Now what has God designed for your life? If God did not have a design, a purpose for you, then you wouldn't be here. You realize that? You wouldn't even be living on this earth. But see, God has a purpose. He has a design for your life. He wants you to be the genuine article, the real thing. And I wonder today, are you the real thing? Are you the genuine article? Are you having an impact on those you come in contact with for the glory of God? Is your life sailor-like? Are you trying to do the right thing but have the wrong doctrine? If you're trying to be saved by works or religion or humanistic thinking, you've got it all wrong. It won't work. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Or is your life Jonah-like? Do you have the right doctrine, but you're living the wrong way? Are you living like the world? Are you saying one thing, but living another? If so, you need to get right with God, just as Jonah needed to get right with God. And we best, best not wait until God chastens us and brings us judgment We need to get it right today. Let's pray. Father in heaven.